All right, welcome to Life, Music, and the Pursuit of Answers. I'm Phil Circle. We're sitting here in Corky's on Van Nuys Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, Los Angeles, on a fine Wednesday evening in March, March 6th, 2019. Two days after the anniversary of the death of the great Del Close. Also, two days after the anniversary of the founding of the city of Chicago where we met. I'm sitting here with Mary Renard. Mary, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hello everybody. Um, I'm Mary Renard. I'm an actress, a director, and a coach. Um, I began my career in the theater when I was 16. I went on the road as a dancer, living in a, a stateroom on a train, and traveled all over the East Coast and Florida. It was great fun. Uh, then after, the, uh, well, and the whole time that I was doing that, I was also studying music. I'm a singer. And then I, you know, went on to do plays. I did the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. I studied opera at Northwestern University, and then also at the American Conservatory of Music, where I met my husband, Ted List. There are many of you out there who know Ted. Ted was a very famous acting coach and actor in Chicago, and I was studying music at the American Conservatory uh, when there were, was an audition notice for choristers for the Lyric Opera. And my teacher, Gisela Gerbling, said, don't you dare try out for the chorus. You're, you're not a chorus, you're a soloist. And so I listened to her, and I didn't. And then my friend, Debbie Kishaba, hi Debbie, if you're out there, she auditioned and she got in. And she became Luciano Pavarotti's best friend. Wow. Right. So they started, start. yeah, they started playing tennis together, going to lunch together. And I was like, damn, that could have been me. I should, I'm not going to listen to anybody anymore. I'm just going to audition for what I want to audition for. So I walked out. You know, and then Gisela was all excited. Oh, did you hear Debbie is, is Luciano Pavarotti's friend? I'm like, you told me not to audition for the part. So I walked out of the room and there was a notice for an audition for a musical version of Lysistrata being directed by Ted Liss. And I thought, well, I'm going to audition for that. So I went and auditioned for it and I got into it. And the first, I, he didn't audition me, his assistant director did. So the first day of rehearsal, I stepped into a little small elevator, you know, the kind with the gate. Remember oh, those? yeah, I remember those, yeah. And I was face to face with Ted. I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was. And we were like inches apart. And uh, he said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm an actress and I'm, I'm here for my first day of rehearsal. And he said, well, I'm the director. I'm Ted Liss. Right. And I said, oh, and I said, well, I'm uh, Mary Bernard. I'm playing the psychic. And we were, from that moment, we were inseparable. It was one of those love at first sight, 24-7 kind of things. So anyway, uh, I married Ted and uh, continued acting and singing and then also started directing. I took directing classes with Ted. And I've been, I did a lot of directing in, in uh, Chicago. And, you know, Chicago is very famous for their storefront theater movement. Yeah, it started in, under the WPA in the 30s by guys like Studs Terkel. Yes, I knew Studs. Yeah. Studs now, you knew him because of his relationship with Ted. Yes, Ted was part of that group. Ted was older than I, I am. Okay. And so Ted was part of that generation. He was friends with um, Studs Terkel and Nelson Algren. Oh, wow. And, um, oh, who is the man with the famous bookstore? Stuart, <laughs> Stuart somebody with a, was a very famous bookstore. It was still around when, when we were in our 20s and 30s. It's gone now. But anyway, there was a whole group of kind of Chicago artists, and they would all meet at that bookstore. Oh, okay. And all right. so, uh, yeah, I got to meet I'll, all I'll, I'll look that up and make sure to add it to notes for this. <laughs> okay. So, the bookstore that we can't remember the Stewart, name of is Stewart called. something. Yeah. Stewart something, right? We'll figure it out. Yeah, Nelson Algren, like, mentions Ted in his, in his books. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. By name or as a... By name. He, okay, so he didn't substitute another name and that's the character or something No, like he, that. He'll, he'll talk about that he walked into Stewart's bookstore to meet Ted Liz and stuff like that. Wow, yeah. all right, that's Although fine. I never met Nelson Algren. Yeah. yeah. Well, can't, can't meet them all. Yeah. yeah. But Chicago is a, 
is really well known. There's something about Chicago that nurtures artists. Yes. And uh, this whole storefront theater movement, like, really blossomed in Chicago, and a lot of very famous actors came out of that movement. When, uh, when, when do you feel it blossomed? The most. When do you think the winners start from, from think, theaters? I think in the seventies. In the seventies. In the sixties. Well, you know what? It, I came upon the scene in the seventies. Right. I I think it got its foothold during the sixties, but during the seventies, that's when you had St. Nicholas Theater, where uh, that I was aware of, where David Mamet was a teenager. Oh, okay. He was an apprentice there. No kidding. Uh, with. J.J. Johnson, who became a good friend of mine, and Jack Wallace, and Mike Nussbaum, and that whole group was performing at St. Nicholas. And then uh, David Mamet, as we know, became a very famous playwright, and a lot of those people kind of, they coalesced into, you know, his group. So there was that theater, there was Steppenwolf. I remember when Steppenwolf was in a church basement. Yeah, that was up in Lake Forest, yes. I think it was Lake Forest. It was one of those like more affluent suburbs. But I remember yeah. going to that church, going to that church basement to see them. I remember Ted judged the one-act play contest that they were in. Oh, really? Yeah, when right. they were just starting out, and they did not like his critique. Oh, no. Oh, no. Who, was, who was in it? Who was involved? They were all in it. Lori, I remember Lori Metcalf. I think John Malkovich directed it. Moira, I remember Moira, Gary Sinise. But they, I mean, did they did they end up then responding to his critique by studying with him at all by chance? No, they they responded to his technique. Or I mean, his critique by giving him a dirty look. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you something. Something that I really learned from those actors at Steppenwolf is they believed in themselves and they believed in each other. Because so many, so many groups, so many storefront theaters, so many groups of actors have come and gone. And that group of actors, they stuck together, they grew together, they really understood what ensemble work is. They were a magnificent ensemble. Not that they were the greatest actors at the beginning, but they believed in themselves, they believed in each other, they supported each other, and they went on the journey together and, and, and became international stars. Believing in yourself is a little bit of a fake it till you make it, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't think they thought they were faking it, though. I think they just thought well, I mean, there, there was a lot that they could have learned from Ted, but they they were just so focused on their own vision. But you you manifest that by believing it. You you yes. go end up developing those skills by believing you have them. Absolutely. You know, and by working with each other. You know, that's that is so important. Ensemble work. You know, there are so many artists that they think it's all about them, mm -hmm. you know, whereas as we know, and those of you out there who are actors, it's about listening and responding, mm -hmm. it's about connecting mm -hmm. to your scene partner, mm -hmm. and they had this amazing connection to one another. I, I, I experienced the same thing in music, I mean, as you know, I've done a little bit of acting, um, I grew up around it, obviously, as we were discussing uh, off microphone. <laughs> uh, the uh, that my mother, you know, produced operetta and stuff. So I grew up around it, you know. Uh, but music was my my choice, uh, you know, the choice that I made creatively, and the thing that I've, uh, you know, gone on to do. Um, what you just described is very much what I will experience on the stage. And so I put it this way, and this is what I share with my own students. To remind them that it's not all about them. Whenever my band is off. If, I, if I'm on stage in the middle of a show and I feel like the band is off, the first thing I, uh, uh, first thing I check is myself. And inevitably, it's because I stopped listening to my band. Yeah. You would think, as the front man, it's, it's Phil's show. He can do whatever he wants. I can, it's all me. You guys do. Just follow me. No. If I'm not responding to them and the, the, the things they do you know, musically in response even to the music that I have written, mm -hmm. you know, then the band's not going to sound any good. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Chicago was very, something about the environment, like really fostered that mentality. You know, there was also the organic theater, there was the free Shakespeare theater, and there was the Second City. You know, those were the days when, I mean, now Second City is an institution, but back then it was still, you know, fairly an exciting upstart. 
And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to know Del Close very well and to team teach with him. And uh, please forgive me, some of you out, out there aren't going to like this, but Del, this came directly from Del, Del's mouth, you know, because they started the Compass Players, and their mission was to create theaters in every community, because they felt that politics, religion, and theater was a place of integration. It was a very high-minded mission they were on. Yeah. But that people, uh, you know, in, who are working people and, you know, who haven't decided they wanted acting as a career, weren't going to be reading plays and memorizing lines. So that's why they thought it would be good to use improvisational techniques. Uh, and Bi Viola Spolin was doing this kind of work. And that every community should have a theater where people could come and tell their story and have their neighbors acted out and where they, they could all, like, commune, basically. So Del Close said that he thought Second City was the devolution of the original mission into a cheap cabaret act. Now, I do believe I read something along those lines, so I'll, I'll vouch for you. Yeah, I heard yeah, it directly don't, don't, from Del. Yeah. Don't that. Well, it, it, and, you know, maybe, maybe it was, you know. Um, the... Um, the interesting thing I find about Chicago in general and the arts in Chicago is we don't seem to mind uh, if it's not polished yet. Yes. Yeah. We like the process. We're okay with a storefront theater. It doesn't have to be a big fancy theater with velvet seats and, and you know, uh, where we wear a nice suit or whatever we go to the show. It can be, you know, and the same thing with you can go into a, a dive bar with live music and there'll be outstanding musicians playing, and they, you know, but they may be improvising and we're okay with that. But this, and, and I, I'd always sort of noticed something unique about Chicago, and of course, I'm biased, I grew up there, you know. It's oh, no, I, I, it's not just you, it's, I mean, most, most people that I speak to have the same thing to say about Chicago that it's very much that way, and what you said about process. Absolutely. And if you're not in love with the process, then you're in the wrong business, because the process is what it's all about. So how, uh, how long, and you, you can give a rough, a rough number of, of, of years if you like, have you been acting, and when, are you, uh, and when did you stop uh, learning? I never stopped learning. Right. I never stopped learning. In fact, uh, we were talking earlier with, with um, Phil's beautiful wife, Megan, who's sitting here, and she had just gone to a, a auditor class, and just from her description, I was very impressed, because it sounds like that coach is still learning. He's learning from his students, you know, and I, I, I coach, I coach a lot, and I am constantly amazed by what the students bring, not, not not saying that they're fantastic actors or something like that, but just what the authentic impulse of each and every one of them is so unique. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, it, and it's so enlightening like to see, we, we were saying earlier also that the dialogue is always the artifact of the emotional life. I, l I love that. I love that term. Explain that. Well, every person might have a different insight into the material, you know, according to their history, you know, with, with their experiential wisdom. So they might have a, you know, a different interpretation of the material. So the same words can mean many different things and can have insights that you would have never dreamed of. I once, once heard an interview by Charlie Rose. He was interviewing Arthur Miller. Was it? Yes, Ooh, Arthur Miller. that would be a good one. It, it was, and, uh, and he asked Arthur Miller, has there ever been a very special night in the theater for you? In, in uh, <laughs> our waitress just came and asked us if we wanted something else. Very sweet woman. Uh, has there ever been a special evening in the theater uh, when you were watching your work performed? And he said, yes. When Sir Lawrence Olivier directed The Crucible, he said, I sat in the audience and I didn't know I had written that play. Uh, nice. His insight into my material was greater than my insight into it was when I wrote it. Yep. Yeah, so... Musicians do that, too, when we write songs. One of the... Uh, uh, argument, not an argument, just sort of a friendly uh, 
debate with uh, a friend of mine, a fellow musician, a long time ago when we were first both into you know music and starting to see a living happening. And uh, she was an immensely talented performer, a guitarist, singer, but didn't write music. And said to me, well, you know, you're, you're, you're more talented than I am because you, you write songs too. And I argued, no, that's crap. When I write a song, it's no longer mine. It's open to anybody's interpretation. In fact, even if I perform it, A, each time I get up on stage and perform it, it's different. B, every person that hears it has a different, hears a different story in their life. So, you know, to to that song. So I've had people, in fact, come up to me and go, oh, that song's about this. And I'm, and I'm thinking, it has nothing to do with what I just, what I wrote. I'm like, where did they even come up with that? But my answer to them is, absolutely. Yes, that's exactly what it's about. Because I didn't write it for me. What, you know, and the same is true then when somebody else takes other people's music and uh, uh, creates it out of thin air. You know, they, they make it their own. There's an element of each individual who brings that to, to bear. And you know, that's what, you know, so what, what Arthur Miller was probably yeah. experiencing. Really, well, and to just discuss this a little further in terms of craft, uh, we were also talking uh, earlier about camera technique, and I was complaining that so many coaches don't go any farther than telling people to be still on camera, and you get this very stilted, you know, very, very still, very monotone delivery. They think that's good film technique. And what, what they're not telling them is that, yes, stillness is essential, but it is essential to connect to your authentic impulse, where your unique history of experiential wisdom can feed into that impulse and be expressed as subtext to the dialogue. How can our authentic impulse um, contribute to the world around us outside the arts? Well, I think um, outside the arts, but just in the way that we live our life. I mean, just that awareness of authenticity. You know, one of the cardinal sins in acting is playing an image, right? Instead of an authentic, having an authentic response, you play an image in life. Like people, mugging yeah. for the camera kind of thing? Yeah, yeah or okay. thinking, oh, this, this person is really mean. Well, I'm just going to be mean. All Judging your character is a big no-no. Yeah, yeah, they also call it playing with quality. You know, the image of yourself. Okay. In life, people often play an image of themselves. So I, I think... Oh, it, yeah, yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is what people, I think, should believe me to be. Yes. And so I will act for that part. Right. And the tone of truth, I think people... People love the theater because it's a place where they can experience the tone of truth. You know, Ted used to call the truth the, the lie that tells the truth. Because you're not the character, and yet what's coming through you is, the tr is truthful. It's an authentic, truthful response. Like how loud our unconscious really is and we don't even hear it. Yes. You know, that we have our conscious mind and we, let, we think that's leading, our, leading us through life. But all the things that our unconscious has been taught through our lives from the time we were little children, all the things that we believe are truths yes. aren't necessarily, you know, and, you know, for instance, people who self-sabotage, and, and, you know, uh, or people who uh, are good at, at, at making money but never good at, at keeping it, uh, because somewhere their, their unconscious mind was taught that uh, money is bad, you know, uh, you know and, and things like that. Uh, but the... the, the self-awareness thing we were talking about too before yes. that the, well, the element of a person who is self-aware is also aware of other people yes. around them because self-awareness is what we are we are really connected right well we, we as actors we're aware of an emotional dynamic that is created through listening and responding right and a lot of times that emotional dynamic is is, is missing you know, from people's lives because they're playing an image of themselves. And I think that it slowly puts you to sleep. You know, you slowly just are acting out rather than actually being centered in your own natural resources, responding to the world. So, so uh, what do we do about that? Well, you know, it's not, it's not as hard as you might think. My explanation is breathe. It's all in the breathing. Because 
those of you who have studied uh, link leather, I'll say more about link leather in a minute, but she, uh, I, I tend to favor what she documented because even Stanislavski says, well, seniors understand this. It's, it's all about breathing, that uh, we, some, there's a stimulus, and that stimulus uh, causes us to react, and we breathe. It causes us to take a breath. Uh, the breath lowers the diaphragm, which is a flat uh, muscle, like a kind of underneath your heart. You know. But anyway, it lowers to your emotional center. This is biological. This isn't philosophy. The emotional center being the, the sacrum. Right. Yeah, you know, what the diaphragm lowers to. At that uh -huh. point, that's the emotional center. That's where all your impulses feed into that breath. This is what you do every second of your life. Is that why we sigh? Yeah, that's right, for other reasons. But that's, all those impulses feed into that breath, and then you play off the release. You play off the release of that breath, and then you, if you're acting, your dialogue is carrying with it all of your experiential wisdom of everything you say. And that's what we do every day, every second of our lives. Now, to duplicate that as actors is what makes a superb actor. It's in breathing, but, but going back to how does it affect just people in life. Uh, I was telling you earlier, one of my day jobs was working uh, for the U of I College of Nursing. And I had many conversations with social workers and psychiatrists where we were cross-referencing breathing techniques because they, it has also been discovered in their line of work that, and it's been discovered empirically, that the way people breathe affects their thought patterns. So that if you do breathing exercises, you can actually change your thought patterns. So, you know, imagine a child who's been abused or is in constant danger. You know, their breath has been affected by that, and therefore their thought patterns have been affected by that. By starting with breathing exercises, it starts to change their thought patterns. And the brain is a lot more malleable than people oh, yes. believe. Oh, yes. Incredibly true. more malleable. You can practically rewire it. Yes, you can rewire it. And when uh, teaching music, I've seen in action uh, students with uh, so-called learning disabilities. I say so-called not because they don't exist, but because I don't like stigma. I have asthma. I don't have asthma disability. Yes. Whether I treat it as a disability is entirely up to me. Right. You know, I had a student who was a thalidomide baby. I meant he was missing his pinkies and his uh, ring fingers were frozen and his arms were shorter and he played guitar at Blues Fest in Chicago. Yes. Obviously it didn't stop him and I asked him one day, I was like, man, how, just have to ask, like, you know, we've been working on guitar with you for six months and played Blues Fest and all this, you know, what, what made you think you could play guitar? With this obvious limitation, he said, "My dad told me not to think of myself as crippled." Wow! You know, and yeah. he sure didn't. Yeah. You know? And and so it's it's those, you know. So that's why you know, just to give a little more explanation, where I say so-called disability, because I don't like to add the stigma to this. Yes. So uh, these students, so with the, you know, so they had they had you know, attention deficit, for instance, you know, and uh, very, very common amongst several uh, teenage male students of mine at one point. Uh, every one of them, once they began studying guitar with me, and I had been reading music and every aspect of music education was involved, uh, in every case, in a matter of uh, six months or so, their grades were going up in school. Yes. And, I, and, and their parents would bring it up, and I go, well, you know, they're practicing all the time, so maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, and I asked them, are you doing any, working any harder? Oh, no. Yeah. And, and they tie this stuff to music. And what's happening is music uses the entire brain. So when, when you know, these triggers, that when there's only a signal going through one section of the brain and it yes. runs into a little roadblock, yes. it causes these issues mm -hmm. that, that uh, cause the trigger to, to malfunction. Yes. But when they then when they're playing music though, the music is using the whole brain, it's opening up new pathways and boom. You know, they, they the brain says, Well this is a much easier way to go. It might be around the block, but I'm getting there quicker. Well and you know? that right brain, you you know, there's left and right brain and that yeah. right brain power is socialized out of us. You know, it's it's antic, yeah. it's yeah. antic, yeah. it's wild, it's imaginative. Keep your mouth shut, don't right. speak when right. you're spoken to, don't right. don't be impulsive. Uh, 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that relearning, reconnecting to your right brain energy, that's something Del Close taught. That was one of his tenets of improvisation, was working holistically, connecting to the right and left side of the brain. And he would give us exercises to do. In fact, um, as I told you, I team talked with him, and he took me under his wing, and he gave me all these books to read, drawing on the right side of the brain. That's a, a great way to get in touch with uh, with your brain. She gives you exercises. You think you can't draw within a half an hour of your drawing, and you can't believe. Like what happened? Well, yeah, like she'll she'll give you an exercise where you don't draw the object, you draw the negative space, you draw the empty spaces around the object, and then you look at it, and suddenly there it is. Or you take an image and you turn it upside down and you cover it with your hand and, and just draw the lines. You know, you don't you don't look at it and go, oh, well, this is a uh, a man uh, playing a guitar, and you know, feel overwhelmed by that. You just turn the thing upside down, cover it with your hand, and you go, here's a curving line, and here's two straight lines, and you just slowly move your hand up, and then you turn it over, and here you have this wonderful picture of a man playing a guitar. So, but these these are ways to wake up the right side of the brain. Also. Um, you, I, I give this exercise a lot in my classes where you have to do two left brain activities at the same time, like writing and reciting a poem or singing a song. Oh, my head would explode. Well, yeah, and people often like become hysterical. They'll start to cry hysterically because the right brain energy has to try to come to assist, and they're not used to that powerful energy. It'll make them laugh hysterically, or it'll make them cry hysterically. Men have become violent. I've had, you know, men like just start pounding on the wall or throw, throwing things because there's this sudden burst of right brain energy. Wow. That has been repressed for all these years. It's a little bit like uh, primal scream therapy in a new, new fashion, a new version. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. But we were uh, talking about authentic impulse, and there was something else I wanted to say about that. I'm trying to remember. Um, oh well, it'll, it'll come to me eventually. It will. But, but authentic impulse. Um, the, what, what that means is like everything that is encoded in your DNA, every experience you've had, all our ancestral memory, which they say now is passed down. You know, it's passed down to us, our ancestral, me ancestral memory. Yeah, I've heard this uh, genetic, yeah. genetic memory. Yes, it's the same chip or all three chips? So everything. Oh, no, you can be put mine on a separate check. Oh. Our waitress is pissed. <laughs> well, we'll give her credit as well. <laughs> okay. Food served by. Oh, right, but it feeds. This is it. like this is like celebrities and cars getting coffee. Oh, uh -huh. I was trying to get you moved, but you weren't. That's okay. Megan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, yes. So this this is what feeds your authentic impulse with every breath you take. That's what it is to be alive. You know, so to be able to ground yourself in your authentic impulse. It's really as easy as taking a deep breath and allowing your diaphragm to drop. I know what it was I was going to say, is that we are socialized into um, secondary impulse. That our authentic impulse is when we are standing in the actual experience, the emotional experience, when we're fully present. We are socialized into secondary impulse understanding what's happening rather than being in the moment of what's happening. Too many math story problems. <laughs> I, I guess, or just, I guess they call that socialization, I don't know. Yeah, no, totally. Well, and the, the, you know, this makes me think of the, the uh, you know, talking about, talking about authentic self and going, um, you know, breathing and grounding yourself into, you know, an authentic, response, you know, to things, uh, and then how that can change your reactivity or responsiveness to situations, yes. to not, for instance, respond or react negatively. If you can respond to a negative situation without reacting with more negativity. Yes. Um, we had our catalytic converter stolen from our car in Chicago right after we moved back there some years ago now. And when I got the phone call from the, from the 
from the mechanic to tell me what why our muffler sounded like a you know dive bomber, uh, I, I I got I was laughing when he told me. I was like, who did they do that? I didn't even know. It was like a whole new thing. I guess they pick where people go and they steal catalytic converters for the precious metal. And, oh, and it's, yeah. So it's an act of desperation. So for one thing, I have. Cobalt, I, have, right? I have compassion or platinum or something, yeah. yeah. And then uh, somebody can go comment on and let us know what the what the metal is. Um, so um, I got off the phone and my friend who was sitting there who was somebody else in the arts community in Chicago, but at the time was there for uh, guitar lesson. You know, I, I got off you know got off the phone and said what happened and she's like, well, how are you laughing at that? They stole your catalytic converter. I said, well, they didn't choose me. They didn't walk down the street and go, we're going to get Phil's catalytic converter. This wasn't a personal attack. This was an act of desperation by somebody who suffered. You know? And whereas, yes, my reaction, secondary, I suppose, reaction in, in, in you know, the past to me may have been, I hope I run into him, you know, taking somebody else's catalytic converter and mistake him for a speed bump, you know. But that's but I've changed my reaction to things to to start by grounding myself in the truth of the situation. And the truth of the situation there was nobody was making a personal attack on me. Right. And it's not the end of the world. We have a thing called insurance and that took care of it, you know. And so the more I feel that the more people can do what you're talking about, to breathe into the situation, to breathe yeah. into an authentic reaction. Uh, they're not only going to learn more about themselves, who they truly are, but they're going to find themselves responding in more positive ways to things, and they're going to be a lot less likely to create further negative things in the world around them. But they're also going to find what? Courage. Because why do we have a secondary impulse? We're scared to death. We're scared to death somebody's not going to like us. We're scared to death somebody's going to disapprove of what we're doing. We're scared to death that we're going to lose our job over saying what we think or feel. We're, you know, we're scared to death that we're going to fail. We're scared to death that we're going to succeed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when we start finding these things that are deeper in ourselves and become a little, and, and find out that our head's not going to explode after all, even though I just said moments ago, I think we all would, you know, with some of those exercises, we start to find the courage, you know, that in spite of the fear we can move forward. In spite of the fear, we can find the resilience we need. Right, that's such such a yeah. good point. And you know, when you say courage, it's really a visceral feeling. It's not just a philosophy. Of be, be brave, be courageous. Yeah, when you feel grounded like that, it just you feel different about life. You feel different about everything, and it's visceral. You wake up. Yes, you wake up. Absolutely. We were talking earlier about so many people seem like they're just falling asleep. You know, because they're never really fully present. Be fully present in your life. Well, then I think that everybody should take an acting class. Probably with you if they're in LA. Um, you know, um, well, you know, or wherever you are, find somebody. Oh, of course, you can do it all online now, can you? Yeah, in fact, I'm, I've been looking into that because I've been getting a lot of requests for online coaching. But I was, as I was telling you earlier, I don't like to be online for too long. You know, I feel the radiation, you know, yeah. and it, it affects me. But, uh, you know, it is what's going on now, so I have to get with it, you know? Well, as with anything, we can we can adapt to, to that. You know? yeah. If you get car sick, uh, you know, Choose when you have to when you take a car. Yeah. You know, or, or just, do it less or you know, stay online for an hour, don't stay online for six hours. Right, right, yeah. exactly. You know, it's, it's my thing. I can't I can't stare at the computer for very long. I, I have a very hard time working in an office. <laughs> well, when I was in college I worked at the Chicago Tribune doing data entry and uh, and uh, I in front of a little, you know, computer like you know, the old 
Mac 2 or something. But I, I think every hour or two I had, to, I had to get up from my desk and go walk out of the balconies at every floor in Tribune Tower. Yeah. And so I'd have to go out there on the balcony, didn't matter if it's 10 degrees out, I had to go out there and get some fresh air and look at the river. Yeah. Or I was going to go bananas, you know, sitting there yeah. staring at the screen. Yeah, so I, fortunately, I don't have a job that requires a yeah. screen longer than I actually want, want to. Yeah. You know. But uh, as we were saying earlier, though, at the same time, I love technology. And that it's like the new frontier. You know, it's like the, the early days of television. It's like the early days of radio. You know, that people can have a platform. You don't have to wait to be chosen, you know, by the powers that be. You know, if you're willing to do the work, you can, you can have your own television show. You can have your own platform. And that really is remarkable. And you can have an audience of millions because it reaches everybody in the world. And, and it's not it's not some fad which a lot of people are still still saying. You know? and, and you're hearing this from two people who are a little older than thirty. You know, so so we're we're not sitting here going, uh, you know, uh, oh, it's the greatest thing in the world. We're also not sitting here going, you know, or we're not sitting here not having known anything else. You know, and we're not, but we're also not sitting here going, oh, uh, you know, that tech, technology stuff. We're saying, well, I'm gonna adapt, aren't I? Yeah. My my dad's old uncle Dave from, from straight from Wales. Uh, Dave, uncle Dave had the worst time. Like he barely drive a car. He had a Model T. My dad would tell stories about Uncle Dave when I was growing up. Well, I met Uncle Dave when he was about ninety eight, right before he died. And my dad uh, had a cousin who was uh, uh, worked at the FAA in uh, in the state of Ohio, and so. Uh, cousin Norman uh, came to meet visit with Uncle Dave as well and the three of them, Norm took my dad and Uncle Dave up in a helicopter <laughs> for a helicopter ride and they were up in the sky and Uncle Dave started crying and my dad and, and Cousin Norm were like what's, what's the matter Uncle Dave what's, what's going on and he said it's just absolutely beautiful I came over here on a sailing ship now we have men on the moon, and now you can fly me up in the air straight from the ground. Well, you know, we, you we might get to see the world from a spaceship. Yeah, right, the way they're going at it. too far off into the yeah, I think it's a quarter of a million dollars a ticket is what I hear uh, they're talking about. Yeah, we'll, 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 wait, we'll wait till the price comes down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. in, in Southwest Galactic happens. Yeah. You know, I, I also wanted, I, I told you a little bit about my history, but just currently I've moved to California. I'm living in California now to pursue my, what was always my plan A, you know, which was to be an actress. Um, you know, after I married Ted, two years into our marriage, he had a heart attack and he was dead in front of me for four minutes. It was extremely traumatizing and they brought him back through electrical paddles, but I didn't leave his side. You know, we were a 24-7 kind of couple anyway, but I didn't leave his side like, until he died of his fourth heart attack, you know, 15 years later. So I, I tell people I served the longest apprenticeship in history because I was in class every night, beginning, intermediate, intermediate, intermediate advanced, directing class, whatever. I was in class every night for 15 years. So, um, so anyway, um, so now I've, uh, well Ted has been gone for quite a while, but now I'm in California pursuing acting. I've been here since September, and I love it here in California. And I got a film uh, through J&R Productions. I just wanted to shout out to Jason and Roberto, the producers, um, who are just really, really wonderful, so hardworking, and give so many people a chance, and uh, have really high standards. and. Uh, it was just really a great experience working with them. And I got to play Robert Dobby's wife. And Robert Dobby has so many fans of his friends, Sanchez from A License to Kill, the James Bond film. <laughs> Everybody immediately goes, oh, I loved him with his friends. Or in The Goonies, where he played the opera singing villain. Yeah. But, and, and so many other things. He was the star of The Profiler, along with Ali Walker. But I got to play his wife, and I had a deathbed scene with him which was really a wonderful experience. And what, it harkens back to what we were talking about, that connection. Like, you know, he, he was trained by Stella Adler, and my husband studied with Stella Adler. So we were actually trained in the same way. Right. So, I mean, he was so easy to work with, so easy to connect with, so receptive. And we, we really didn't even have to speak. 
you know, it was like we could just get on each other's wavelength and work like that, which was wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah, and then uh, Terry Polo played my daughter. She's uh, wonderful too, from the Fosters. So I just wrapped that uh, about a month ago, and of course, like every other actor, you know, I'm looking for my next job. That's what I understand. It's uh, you, 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 uh, what was I had a guitar student who's done just about every August Wilson play um, in, in, in Chicago. He's a good new actor and stuff, and he came to me for guitar because he was going to do another play where he's going to play a guitar player. So, Sixty-nine years old came to me for his, to learn guitar from scratch. First of all, that impressed me because the constant learning thing, you know. Yes, yes. But he, he said, "Oh, it's you know." Uh, he's talking about my wife, you know, who's younger than 69, by about half that age. And, uh, More than half that age. Yeah, and she, uh, you know, and he was saying, well, you know, her, her job's going to be nothing but audition. Yeah. It's, when you're not in a production, you're, you're auditioning, Absolutely. auditioning, auditioning, auditioning. That's, what you have, that's a hard lesson to learn for a lot of actors, that that is your job, yeah. auditioning. It's, I hearken it to, to uh, connect it to hearkens around here. Once in a while, I need a better, I need a better, better mental dictionary. I'm going to get an autocorrect chip and put it in my scalp. Hey, listen. It's only a matter of time. You're going to have one of those pretty soon. Yep. You heard about transhumanism? We're going to be more robot than we are flesh uh, in the near future. It, it's, if, 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 you know, I, I've got a fake hip, and if they hadn't come up with, the, with that technology, I wouldn't be walking. Absolutely. So, yeah, we have right. to have faith, right? We have to have faith in the future. We have to have faith in evolution. We have to have faith in love, that human beings function on love, that love is stronger than the rest, and otherwise it's pretty scary, <laughs> you know, when you think about what the future holds. For centuries, generation after generation, has figured they were going to be the last. Yeah, I know. As they watch I things know. happen, we have to have faith in the yeah. human race, in the human heart, in yeah. human spirit, in God. Whatever, whoever your God is, or if you don't whatever have a God, you, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is that propels you forward with goodwill and goodness. But I also wanted to mention uh, Capricelli Productions. Maria Cat was our director for the movie. was called Pizza and Wine. Pizza and Wine. Right, and she gave many women opportunities. We had a female cinematographer. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very like uh, heavily crewed by females. It was. Uh, She's a, really a wonderful woman, a wonderful director, and uh, I just love working with that production company. And then uh, Jason and Roberto from J&R were her producers, so it's just a terrific team. When when can we expect that to be It will be out? coming out uh, next Christmas. It's a Christmas tale. Oh, fun. Yes, and uh, I think that it might become uh, a movie that people watch every Christmas. One of those yes. Christmas cult classics. Yes, I that, that so. would be awesome. Yeah, it would be yeah, awesome. We, we all have something. I have, I, what's your Christmas movie? Oh, I, you know what? I have so many. I, Name I, two. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And Meet John Doe. Meet John Doe? Yes. With Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. Oh. I also like Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck. I also love Heidi. Heidi? I love Heidi with Shirley Temple. I, 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 my biggest one is, because I can quote it, is White Christmas. Oh, of course, White and the Christmas. Music, the music has a lot to do with it, though. With I, the I sisters, sisters, yeah. I and, love that. And, and, and uh, Danny Kaye's number choreography. Oh, yeah, 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 I love that it. number too. I love it. <laughs> what, about, what about other annual classics that you like? Do you have any, for instance, uh, you know, heavily, heavily of Irish descent, so I always watch The Quiet Man. Oh, I love The Quiet Man. Yeah, so yeah. same thing I can quote from that one. Uh -huh. what's Here's a stick to beat the beautiful lady. Lady, yes, yes, there it is. I love it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I know. Or I, you know what I like? Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Did you watch I that? I haven't seen it in so long. But Sean Connery yeah. sings in that. That's right. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Sean Connery singing. That alone is worth seeing. And he's wonderful. 
he's wonderful. He's such a good actor. I think some sometimes because he's so good looking and he was such a great James Bond yeah. that sometimes people lose sight of, of what a dimensional superb actor he really is. Did you ever see Finding Forrester with him and uh, Forrest Whitaker? No, I never did. It's a very obscure one and really really well done. Like that. It's just a very obscure one. Mm -hmm. um, what about, okay, and, and, and uh, I hate when people ask me as a musician who's your favorite uh, band or what's your favorite kind of music or anything like that. So I have to say what's your favorite movie, uh, but name a favorite. Oh, you know the one that always comes to my mind, although I have so, I mean, I love movies. Like I, my grandmother uh, used to, my, my grandmother was a very um, accomplished ragtime pianist. Oh, fantastic. But she lived at a time when, you know, women were discriminated against. Sure. But she still went out and she played, and she, she worked for pianola. Like she, you know, when you hear one of those, you know, where you crank it up and the, the keys play themselves. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's her. She's one of the people that, that's played, played, that made who, the piano rolls. Oh, so she played the piano right. to, to hammer out the piano the rolls. piano rolls, right. All right. And uh, she used to play at, at bars, you know, much to the disdain of my grandmother. Oh, sure. But she, she, she was just a great pianist and she was a great singer. She had her own radio show called The Ruth Mack Show. Some of you out there might remember it back in the early days of radio. She was the voice that would open up radio stations when radio was new and they'd have somebody sing to open up, you know, a new station in Pennsylvania or Delaware or whatever. It was her often. But so she was she was a showbiz person, kind of thwarted showbiz person. So she used to stay up all night and watch TV and you know, play cards and watch TV. And in the summertime, I used to sneak downstairs, you know, we'd be put to bed, because we lived with our grandparents. And she'd always let me stay up with her and watch the late show and the late, late show. All right. So I saw all those old movies, and I own them now. I can't live without them, because most of them aren't being shown on television anymore. Mm -hmm. So the movie that, that I loved, that was one of the first movies that I saw on the late show or the late, late show, was The Major and the Minor, starring uh, Ginger Rogers and Ray Milland. Billy Wilder comedy. Um, so then when I was about 11 years old, Raymond Land was doing My Fair Lady at the Highland Temples Theater. And my mother, God bless her, took me to see that. And afterwards I said, I want to, I want to sneak backstage and I want to meet Raymond Land because I love the major and the minor. And my mom let me. You know, so as the um, some of the actors were walking out, I just darted in through the stage door and I found the door with his name on it, and I knocked on it, and he opened the door, wow. and here's this 11-year-old girl, and I blurted out, I love the major and the minor. <laughs> and he said, you're not old enough to know about that movie, because I saw it on the Late Late Show, and he thought that was so funny. So and he invited me in, and he let me sit there while he took off his makeup, and he talked to me, and I said, I'm going to be an actress, and told him all about, you know, how I loved his movies. It was just, I never forgot it. He's one of the great loves of my life. Yeah, Until right. suddenly there was a knock on the door. It was my panic-stricken mother. Because <laughs> 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 my daughter in there, because I'd been gone for over half an hour. Sure. So whenever whenever anybody asks me my favorite movie, that's the first okay. one that comes to mind. But there are so many, so many. Right, that's why I say I don't ask for a favorite. You know, so. How about you? Casablanca. Oh, I love yeah, it's it's the original buddy movie too. You know, you got all these. The beginning of a beautiful relationship. Oh yeah, and and like in the history of the way the movie was put together, as I learned about that, there was yes. sort of an in between for all of them. Nobody thought it was gonna be any good. And nobody knew they what did, the ending was. Right, because they're writing it as they're right. going. It was based on a really bad play. Yeah. You know. And, and, Rick's uh, cafe wasn't. Yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Everybody goes to Rick's or something everybody like that. Everybody goes to Rick's. Yeah. That's right. And I have the screenplay, uh, the script for the screenplay, because I wanted to adapt it to the stage. But then I looked at how many characters you need, and I went, yeah. And I even had a place ready to let me produce it and everything. And, and uh, but I just, no, it, it was too yeah. much. So yeah, one, is, one day. That when, is a you know, problem when you, when you have a lot of characters, it's yeah. hard to find a producer. And, and then how do you stage it and all that kind of stuff. But even that I had kind of worked out. But well, you know, I, I just love the whole story. About, I learned a lot about staging in storefront theater because you're working in a very small space. Oh, yeah. So you really learn how to uh, block scenes just in pools of light. 
You know, just like oh, a sure. little small stage can like accommodate 20 different locations or, or more just by the way it's lit. And who does a great job with that also is Red Orchid Theater in Chicago. Yeah, they, they have a fairly small stage, but I've seen plays there that have so many different locations and they do an amazing job. You know, where you actually feel you're in a different location. You know, you might move two feet over on the stage, but the way it's lit or they'll just like spin a, a, a piece of flat around and it'll have something different on the other side. And, sure. and they create amazing environments. And Red Twist Theater, where I'm a company member, they're very good at that too. They have a very small space. And they've done shows that require a lot of different locations and just done an amazing job. That's good. Yeah. Where can people find you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm trying to be better on social media. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on um, Facebook. On Facebook, I have uh, two profiles, one under Mary Renard and one under Mary Renard Bliss. Okay. Um, so on, I, on Instagram, what's your uh, yeah, handle, so to speak? Mary Renard. Okay. Probably Instagram would be the best platform because a lot of times I don't accept friends if I if there's no mutual friends. If you don't know I'm who they are. <laughs> I don't yeah, know who's this person? Yeah, right. whereas on Instagram you can follow anybody. Sure. Yeah. And that's uh, Renard spelled how? R E Y M A R D. And Mary spelled like you think of it. M A R D. Why? That's right. You yes. gotta be, you gotta check with people. I know. <laughs> I'm change my, my, my spelling for Phil. I'm going to change it completely. Just to a double L. Oh, right. <laughs> I've had some people to do that. I have two L's in my name. Uh -huh. It's named after my grandfather, but I was born two months early, and my mom was so freaked out, she misspelled my name on the birth certificate. Finally, when I was nine, I said, I, I said Mom, why do I spell my name Philip with one L? Grandpa's got two. And then she told me that story. Okay, I said, well, well, you just let this go? You know, so at nine years old, I said, we got to go to court and fix it. So we went and fixed it, put two L's back in my name, you know. Oh, my but I, But as Phil, it's just, yeah, it's not Phil. Ooh, it's, you know. Well, before we say goodbye, I also want to say that I spent the afternoon with uh, Phil and Megan and uh, Ted. Ted Wolfers. Yep. Wolfers, right. And Phil was recording his latest album, uh, which right now it's called Baritones, but it, the name could change. But it's going to be released on all platforms. And if you haven't heard Phil sing, uh, check out his album. It was so much fun watching watching them put it together. You know, it, it's really, some, some of those numbers are just incredible. So really check it out. And I thank you for letting me sit in on that. I learned so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for, for sharing that as well. Yeah. And thanks for talking to us and taking your time. It's, stuff. it's, it's always a pleasure. And uh, we'll do more. Yeah, like I said, I wish you guys lived out here. Well, we, we could start, we could create our own empire. There you go. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. Okay. Well, it's cheap enough to fly out here, so I expect we'll be back. Good. I hope All so. Right. Thanks. You're welcome. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Goodbye. everyone. Peace.